It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, Do I Walk in the Spirit or the Lusts of My Human Nature? Coming up in this episode, as a Christian, it's always all about doing the right things to be faithful. So what are the right things? In Galatians, the Apostle Paul gives us a long list of things we are not supposed to do. There are 15 things on this list. Does this mean my life is over? Should I just move to a monastery? (laughs) Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years, and Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for today's episode? Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. It's a simple equation, this scripture, with a guaranteed end result. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. As Christians living in an anything-goes world, this straightforward statement can be easily overlooked and even ignored. Among the many challenges we face today, being like everyone else is among the most subtle of temptations. We experience subtle social pressure in our workplace, at school, with friends, family, and neighbors. Combine all of that with the never-ending online influence of social media to conform or be negatively labeled, and we experience an unrelenting onslaught of pressure to conform or suffer. How do we as Christians learn to identify and then overcome all that is wrong so we can truly follow all that is right? This multiple-part series will clearly label what can keep us from inheriting God's kingdom and what helps us inherit that kingdom. In Galatians 5, 16 through 25, the Apostle Paul intentionally contrasts walking in the Spirit that produces the beautiful fruit of good character with the lust of the flesh. We want to run away from 15 fleshly things and run to the nine spiritual ones. Paul kept it simple. He provided us with these two detailed lists. The first is a list of what not to do. And we're going to talk about this in detail over the next two episodes because they can be really difficult to fight. But the second list is the famous fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, and so on. We're going to explore those God-honoring characteristics in the coming weeks. All right. So before we get into all of that, it's always important to go back to Jesus. He gave us basic fundamentals to build on. We're going to look at two fundamentals here. First is humility. Jonathan, let's go to Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You'd think that humility would be one of the fruit of the spirit to be developed, but it isn't. Why? I think it's not because it's so basic that you can't develop the fruit of the spirit without humility. So humility is the basis from which the fruit of the spirit can be built upon. That along with the other piece that we're going to put as a foundation from Jesus, and that is constancy in sacrifice, Jonathan, Luke 9, 23. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. True discipleship goes beyond just being a good person. First, doing God's will, not our own, takes humility to put our preferences 
out of the way by asking God for his direction over and over again. Secondly, taking up our cross means our sacrifice is for a lifetime. It's not an emotion that comes and goes. So we need to understand humility and constancy and sacrifice are a basis for everything we're going to be looking at today. Now, look, Jesus taught us much more than just these two things, much, much more. But for this discussion today, we're going to use these simple points as a foundation for the detailed teachings of the Apostle Paul on the matter of living faithfully. We know the Apostle Paul was called the Apostle to the Gentiles. His mission was to develop churches and places where idolatry and sensuality ruled the day. So what was first century Greece and Rome like? Well, civic cults united the community around a particular God. For instance, if you were an Ephesian, it was your civic duty to worship Artemis. And there's also ruler cults back then. They were also called imperial cults. People worshipped the emperors as gods or sons of gods, and that was popular among the Galatians. For example, the emperor Nero claimed to be divine as Apollo incarnate. Adultery was common. Divorce required only written or oral notice. And homosexuality between young men or between an older and a younger man was openly accepted. And sex and religion mixed as temple prostitutes was a part of some worship. And I thought this was really interesting. Uh, there, you know, we all heard of the gladiators, the brutal gl- combat spectacles in the amphitheaters in Rome. I found a quote from historian Everett Ferguson: "Executions were considered less exciting than mortal combat. Consequently, when executions were included in the day's program, eh, they were typically carried out during the lunch break." Oh, <laughs> well, Paul. that just tells you the brutality of it. Paul was all too familiar then, as you look at all of those things, with the challenge of not only being different, but teaching others to be different as well, all for the sake of Christ, all by putting all of that stuff away. So Galatians chapter 5, that's where we're parking ourselves for this series. Galatians 5, verses 16 to 25. But right now, Jonathan, let's just do Galatians 5, 16 and 17 as we kick this thing off. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. I'd like to pause here. I like how simple the guarantee is. Do this, and you will have spiritual success. Verse 17, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So Paul here has begun his reasoning. So this is just the very, very beginning. He's beginning his reasoning with a stark comparison of godliness and sin. He makes it clear that there is no middle ground. There is no, well, sort of this way, sort of that. No middle ground. To walk in the Spirit is to walk in the opposite direction of following the desires of the flesh. Jonathan, you read, so that you may not do the things that you please. So our natural inclination, our human nature, is going to be to go to a certain direction. But there can't be compromise down the middle in this case. And some in mainstream Christianity are so focused on inclusivity that the message and the mission get watered down. The standards keep getting lowered. But Paul is clear. We are either walking towards God or away from God. Galatians 5.18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So he drops this in as he's talking about walking by the Spirit and not the deeds of the flesh. Now he brings up the law. And here's the thing. Up until the sacrifice of Jesus was complete, the only way 
The only way to cope with the desires of the flesh was to be under the law that God had given to the Jewish nation. Paul spends a good portion of this letter to the Galatians uh, refuting Christians in Galatia who were preaching that the law applied to followers of Christ. So you had this sect of Christianity that was very influential saying, no, you have to take the law. You have to be part of the law. Here in chapter 5, of Galatians. He's again reminding these Galatian Christians that to be under the law is to not have the freedom that being in Christ brings. Walking in the Spirit doesn't mean, in other words, dragging the old law along with you, because that would make you captive of the law. You'd be going in the opposite direction of where you should be going. And this is important because it is a simple, Jonathan, you mentioned the simple equation. It's a simple thing. You're either going in the right way or you're going in the wrong way. There isn't any middle ground here. So as Paul prepares to delve into the matter of human versus spiritual direction, he adds a subtle detail to build on his reasoning upon. So now there's going to be this subtle detail added, but let's go back and do a little defining first. So let's go back to Galatians 5.16. We've already read it, but now let's examine it. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And desire is a longing, especially for what is forbidden. In other words, desire is a deep internal drive. This word has both negative and positive meanings. First, the negative, Romans 6, 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Now for the positive meaning, Luke twenty-two fifteen, And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So this is much more consuming than just a passing thought. Yeah, yeah. And, and here's the thing. When you look at the negative scripture, Jonathan, you read from Romans 6, 12, don't obey the lusts. And you get a sense, oh, that's really dark. That's not something good. But the exact same word is Jesus saying, I've earnestly desired. It's two different forms of the same word, the same word to have this Passover with you. So what Jesus is saying is that the deep longings of his heart, which were good, which were positive, we're bringing him in a certain direction. So you have to see this for what it's worth and have to understand there's a dividing line here. Because desire is not always bad, and Jesus proves that to us here, we need to look into what the desire is motivated by to determine if that desire has worth, positive worth. So Galatians 5.16, Jonathan, you've read it a couple times already. Galatians 5.16 was speaking about the desire of the flesh. So what is the desire of the flesh? What about that word? What does it mean? Well, flesh means the physicality of your being, or by implication, human nature. Okay, by implication, human nature. So we've got that sense. So walking by the Spirit keeps us from fulfilling what our human nature naturally wants. But everything about our human nature is not bad or wrong. Some of us might have a desire to serve others or could be said to be hardworking or loving by nature. Those aren't the kind of desires we should be putting away, right? No, no. And, and I'm glad you brought that up because we want to be clear that there are things that need to be put away and things that need to be developed and then matured in accordance with our, our spirituality and following Jesus. So this is important but it's the desires of our human nature that we have to be on guard about. So that sets the general picture here. 
uh, of of moving forward the disease, the deeds of the flesh. Okay, so this this is where we're going now. So he's ready to do his comparison. So the subtle and important difference now comes up. We've talked about the desires of the flesh. So now, Jonathan, Galatians 5.19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, and deeds are our actions. Literally, what we do with ourselves, what we dedicate ourselves to, either positive or negative, will inevitably produce some sort of action. The desires of the flesh produce the deeds of the flesh. Ideally, we want to cut off or redirect our improper desires before they get to that action stage. So that's the key. The apostle talks about the desires of the flesh producing the deeds of the flesh. So he's actually telling us how to handle this. And again, Jonathan, going back to that comment you made earlier, it's a really simple equation. You walk in the Spirit, and you won't follow the desires of the flesh, which will inevitably, inevitably bring you to the deeds of the flesh. It's, it's simple, but it's one of the hardest things we'll ever manage. As simple as it is, it's one of the hardest things we have to face. So Paul's message here. Christians are called to walk according to God's Spirit, according to His power and influence. We must confront confront the longings of our human nature so as to avoid our own lower human actions. So Rick, just to clarify, developing the fruit of the Spirit is not about us being a good person or having social acceptability. It's about being a godly, sacrificial disciple of Jesus. Couldn't have said it better myself. That's exactly the point. It's not just, oh, I'm a good person. That's not what Christianity is about, and that's what this multiple-part series, I think, is, is going to show us. It's about rising above human nature, and being a good person, nice, that's nice, but that's not Christ-like. That's the difference. That's what we're focusing on here. That's where we need to be going. So the introduction to this message is simple. To do what everyone else does automatically sets us in the wrong direction. So far, this almost looks impossible. <laughs> How could we always do the exactly the opposite of what we want to do? Well, one of the challenges of trying to line up the stark differences between a spiritually based life and a normal human life is drawing dramatic conclusions that are not implied in the comparison. To say that anything and everything we do from a human standpoint is wrong is to take this lesson severely out of context. See, we need to pay attention to what's being focused on, and the Apostle Paul is going to really focus us, and what that brings us to. And those are two themes that are going to be repeated throughout this entire series. What's being focused on, and what does it bring us to? So let's begin to open this up a little further. Now we've got a basis and a foundation. Paul is now ready to begin listing those things which take away spiritual opportunity in life and contrast them with those things which are a result of spiritual opportunity in life. And again, it's one way or the other, nothing in between. Let's first look at the bad list, Galatians 5, 19 through 25. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, 
envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Phew, what a list. (laughs) Now, here's the good list, starting in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So, Jonathan, you read a list of 15 very bad things and nine very good things. So you've got 24 things here, and that's why this is a multiple-part series, because we don't want to cheat the treatment of any one of these things, even if they're negative, because we need to put them in the appropriate perspective for our spiritual lives. So here's the first thing to notice. You'd mentioned the first list is the bad list, the deeds of the flesh. And like you said, there are 15 specific deeds listed. And the interesting thing is they are in five general categories. Now, I don't know if, we've, if, if, if we take time to, to look at that, but this is important because it helps us to follow the Apostle Paul's reasoning. It says in, in verse 19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. So let's list out what these categories are of the deeds of the flesh, in, beginning with Galatians 5.19. Go ahead, Jonathan, get started with that. Well, the first category is intimate human desire. These are found in verse 19 and are immorality, impurity, and sensuality. The second category are those that have spiritual control in our lives, and verse 20 warns against idolatry and sorcery. Next week, we will talk more about the third category, in interpersonal relationships. These are found in verse 20 and are enmities, strife, jealousy, and outbursts of anger. And we're going to continue later on with that fourth category, which is group relationships. Verses 20 to 21 describes these as disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying. And finally, the fifth category of the deeds of the flesh, reckless behavior. Verse 21 says, these are drunkenness and carousing. Those are some categories with some descriptions in each one. Now, here's the the interesting thing. After Paul, after the Apostle Paul states examples of these five categories of behavior, he covers anything he may have missed. Uh, Jonathan, let's continue verse 21. And these things, like these, of which I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's smart to include that catch-all category of, and things like these. There's no loophole to say that something you want to do is okay because he didn't mention it by name on the list. And if you notice at the very beginning, Paul says, the deeds of the flesh are evident. They're obvious to all once they reach that outward action stage, but they should also be evident to us as the opposite of God honoring during our thought stage. So if our thoughts are focusing on any of these warning bells should be going off. And, and you know, and that's why, Jonathan, you mentioned that everything that hum, humans do isn't a bad thing. That's why you can tell, you can tell when you read through these lists, and I'm not going to go through it now, but when you read through it, you get a sense of, nah, that's not good. No, that's not good. No, that's just a reaction. No, nah, better not, better not. So, the apostle is giving us not only things to watch out for, but he's putting them in in categories so we can really know what we're looking at. So let's break these down. Let's start, Jonathan, let's start with this first category. 
Well, that's intimate human desire as described in Galatians 5, verse 19. These are immorality, impurity, and sensuality. All right, now, immorality, impurity, and sensuality. That's the order. Often, when we list behavior, we begin with the more subtle things and end with the dramatic. You know, you're kind of building up to a crescendo. It's interesting, here, the Apostle Paul is doing the opposite. He's listing the highest and most dramatic wrong, that's immorality, and then going back down the ladder, ladder to sensuality. So let's look at the things that he talks about here in the opposite order that he lists them, because that will help us understand what he's saying. So again, the three things here are immorality, impurity, and sensuality. So Jonathan, where do we begin? What is being focused on? Sensuality. Today, sensuality is used to describe everything from intimate beauty to inspiration, and even an expression of modern luxury. These words sound much more acceptable in today's context than the actual definition of sensuality, which the Greek language reveals. The Greek-English lexicon defines this as unbridled lust, excess, shamelessness, insolence, and insolence means rude or disrespectful behavior. So you have the ancient Greek definition, and then you fast forward to the 21st century, and you look at the same thing, and, and in our world, it's like, oh, cool. But in their world, it was like abrupt. It was an attention-getting, no, from a Christian standpoint, this should be far away from you. So this is important because we need to understand what was originally meant by these things. Here's the in relation to sensuality, the thought here is to have sexuality on one's mind and to be overtly expressive of it. Now, look, we're going down roads that at Christian questions we don't like talking about, but we That's need... That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> right, <I know>. Julie? <laughs> you. <laughs> well, you know, and, and, and folks, you got to understand that when we were doing our, our prep talk for this between Jonathan, <laughs> Julie, and myself, uh, the, the kickback from the, from the group was not good. Like, really, Rick? And it's, yes, because we need to understand it. We need to be able to understand it so we can stand clear. So we're talking about sexuality on one's mind and overtly expressive uh, of that of that, that those thoughts. Let's look at Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walked in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So what you have here is, is the scripture in Ephesians is saying, you once were there, you're now here. Don't go back down toward those roads because it says they gave themselves over to impurity and greediness within this context of sensuality with that word with such a big definition. And the word callous jumped out at me, Rick. It said, having become callous. Well, what does callous look like in our hearts? If you have a callous on your hands or fingers, you can no longer feel. Calluses from hard work or playing the guitar, for example, are good things. But being desensitized to that which is godly is another. But that's still not as bad as having your conscience seared as with a branding iron, as described in 1 Timothy 4.2. Here, there is still hope for a callus to soften. Yeah. 
And what jumped out at me was giving themselves over to sensuality. I found a booklet called Your Brain on Porn at CovenantEyes.com. And I'll talk more about that shortly. But here's the quote. One act of lust leads to two, two leads to four, and four leads to an all-consuming desire. Its appetite is never satiated. And really, when you think about sensuality, it brings you down the road of an and unquenchable appetite. And we need to be clear and understand the Apostle Paul is saying, don't go this direction. These are the deeds of the flesh. This sensuality comes from within. It's a palatable desire that expresses itself without regard for the sacredness of human sexuality that we as Christians are taught to respect. The phrase sacredness of human sex sexuality is important. Desire is good and valuable. It just needs to be aimed at the right target. And this is different from sex being recreational, where today you look around, every kind of deviation is normalized and celebrated. Promiscuity becomes the default normal, and abstinence is viewed as weird or unhealthy. It's good to read Second Peter, the entire second chapter for homework. But in verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Peter uses the word sensuality several times to describe false Christian prophets. 2 Peter 2, 1 and 2. But false prophets also arose among them, just as there were also false prophets among you, who will secretly induce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. That last part of verse 2, many will follow their sensuality, the truth will be maligned. This reminds me of all those sad headlines we've seen about the sex scandals, not only in the monolith denominations of Christianity, like Catholic, Lutheran, and Baptist, but also these big Protestant and evangelical megachurches. As the Bible says, the way of the truth It's certainly maligned because parishioners who trust their leaders to live one way find out that they're secretly living another. And, you know, those who go to to such churches and they find that, it has got to be one of the most disillusioning things you will ever see because you're supposed to be seeing a representative of Christ. And what you're seeing is a representative of human sensuality, of human desire that is unable to control itself. So this is a really big, difficult deal that we're looking at here. So what does this kind of sensuality, this unbridled lust and shamelessness bring us to? A dead end of human, godless, and selfish desire. We see that in 2 Peter 2, 17 to 19. These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. That's really something to think about. A person is enslaved by what overcomes them. That's addiction. And unfortunately, we've got to pause and talk about the problem of pornography. Jonathan, you said part of the definition of sensuality in the Greek is insolence, which means disrespect. I'm going to give another quote from that booklet, Your Brain on Porn from CovenantEyes.com. Pornography is essentially wrong because of its message. It rips sexuality from its relational context 
and presents human beings not as creatures made in God's image, but as sexual commodities, something to be bought and sold. It's disgraceful. It's disgraceful, and it's everywhere. And the scriptures, the the, the New Testament scriptures written 2,000 years ago, give us ample warning to keep ourselves pure and not to be drawn away by fleshly desire and sensuality. They're telling us long before these kinds of things existed the way they are now. Studies show the similarities in the brain between alcohol addiction and porn addiction. MRIs show the reward centers of the brain light up when someone addicted to pornography sees certain photos, which is exactly what happens when an alcoholic sees a picture of a drink. It's crazy. It's crazy. Now, understand, folks, the word for sensuality in Scripture never expresses anything in any remotely positive way Ever. It's always something to run away from. So, Jonathan, as we start to, to, to put this sensuality in order, we have a choice, folks. And the choice is, are we rising to a spiritual life or are we falling into human depravity? What, what do we have? To be sensual, according to the New Testament, is to be inappropriately expressive of sexually driven desires. It brings no goodness or godliness to anyone as it seeks to only provoke deprivation. Such feelings and thoughts have no place in the life of any Christian. This deed of the flesh proclaims a broken moral compass. Well, I have a a mirror question. Looking at the mirror, what am I dwelling on? And how do I reflect that focus? Well, with all this negative talk, I can't wait to talk about clean hands and a pure heart found (laughs) in Psalm 24, 3 and 4. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sought deceitfully. Now, Rick, you've been in the difficult position of having to counsel Christian couples on the issue of pornography. Let me ask you two questions. Can you give us some insight as to how that works? And because you can't unsee what you saw, you can't help what triggers your brain as pleasurable. How do you get around that? That's a whole big subject. First of all, let me plainly state, I am not a professional counselor and don't pretend to be. uh, But the, the, the privilege you have in situations like this is to be an encouragement and a help. And what you do to encourage is you help people understand what the input is what it is, and how degraded it is. So you see it, and you look to replace the input. You replace the go-to activity that comes from the input, and then you have accountability. And in my own personal experience over many years with dealing with this kind of situation with, with, with different individuals, the best way to find success, and this sounds hard and, and, and difficult, but it's to talk with both spouses together. So what you say to one spouse, the other spouse hears. And you put it all in perspective. There is blatant, brutal accountability and an understanding of righteousness versus degradation. And small step by small step, you look to try to make progress. And you're right. You can't unsee what you've seen, but you can make it smaller. You can make it in the background of your mind. You can make it have a different label. Instead of being something that's exciting, it's something that becomes repulsive. All of this takes time. And Rick, what role does shame play in this? It seems like too much shame and the person gets buried and feels it's impossible to find their way back. 
but too little shame and their conscience isn't pricked enough to help them stay within the lines of what's acceptable. You guys are asking really big questions. And, and you know, the, the shame is very important. To feel the shame of sin is always an important part of the repentance. Remember, repentance isn't just saying, oh, I'm sorry. Repentance is turning around and going in the opposite direction. And one of the great motivators is shame, appropriately placed shame. And this is, I will confess that of all of the things you deal with in this kind of circumstance, trying to figure out what level of shame belongs is really, really hard. And God's grace takes a a big, big role in that. But it's important. It has to be there. We have to make sure that we know what we're repenting of. And it's so it's so shameful, so disgraceful, we don't want to go back. Big subject, guys, big subjects, but appreciate the questions on it. So let's, let's take a look at this now and put it all in perspective. What fruit of God's power and influence, fruit of the Spirit, can help us overcome sensuality? And Jonathan, I'm going to ask you, pick a fruit, but first let's read the fruit of the Spirit. Let's get, talk about something nice here. So Galatians 5, 22 and 23, then pick a fruit in relation to the sensuality subject. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Well, in this situation, I think goodness would help. Keep the goodness of the marriage relationship so nothing gets in between it. There is a great contentment in a marriage when it is kept pure. And, you know, there's so much to be said here and, and so many of the fruit of the Spirit. You can say, no, no, it's a different fruit. Good. Apply it. Oh, no, it's a different one. Good. Apply it. The point is, we're given the answers as we're shown the, tri- the trials and the problems. And that's how the Apostle Paul is working us through this. So we've only looked at one of these deeds of the flesh, and it's already depressing. So glad to have the fruit of spirit, the Spirit for inspiration. We began with sensuality as the least of the misdirected human desires. How much worse can it get? I know. It's like, what? Well, the sad thing is, there always seems to be multiple ways for things to get worse. As we begin to examine the path that sensuality brings us to, we realize that the next step from thinking and acting out in a certain wishful way is to make that depraved approach a way of life. It has been said that thoughts are things. When we allow our thoughts and desires to take such root, they shape our character. We need to be careful. So Jonathan, where are we going from here? Well, the first category, let's be reminded, it's the intimate human desire, verse 19, immorality, impurity, and sensuality. What is being focused on now? Impurity. And that means unclean in thought and life. Okay, that's a pretty simple, straightforward way to describe it, and that's good. We need simple and straightforward, even if it's kind of nasty. So we see this impurity as being developed, uh, a developed way of life outside of God's grace and walking away from the redemption of Christ. And Rick, I see this from two paradigms. How do you undo what you did in the past when you come into Christ and If you're in Christ and go down this wrong road, how do you get out? You know, one of the things, and those are both important because those both both of those situations arise, and and you know you carry your past with you. What are you supposed to do with it? 
it is so important not only to confess your sins to the Heavenly Father and to repent, but to seek help within the body. Find someone to be accountable to, someone you can trust spiritually to help you. Because if you fall in, you reach out and you can get a hand to help pull you up. And for those of you who are helping, be sure, be sure you stand on solid ground with great humility because it's God through Christ working in you. It's not you. If you think you're so smart, beware, because you're about to fall. That's just the way all of this works. So really, a lot of it comes down to repentance and accountability. It really, truly does. So let, and we don't, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry. We don't accidentally fall into a life of impurity. You know, we might lapse into a moment of sin, but a sexual habit or addiction or dependency, this takes time, and we've got red flags along the way. And those red flags are important opportunities for in intervention and help. Again, impurity here means unclean in thought and life. This is who you have become. So with that thought of impurity, let's look at spiritual impurity. But this will be probably a little different than you may expect. Spiritual impurity. Jonathan, let's go to Mark chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. These unclean or impure spirits are fallen angels. Their way of life is to be basically a minion of Satan. They didn't accidentally disobey God and follow Satan. They left God. And when we know better but don't do better, we don't seek help, we don't make ourselves accountable to anybody, we're in danger of living an impure life. And that's the point. Impurity, we're looking at this as a way of life. Sensuality, that's something that's happening inside of your, your heart and mind and your expressions here and there. You stay with it, and you end up with an impure life, an intentionally godless life. And you say, well, that's not what I mean. Well, yeah, it is, because those are the choices that you made. But the fallen angels, they are a classic, classic example of this. So what do we do with this? What does impurity bring us to? Well, a dead end of a human, godless, and spiritually detoured life. Romans 1, 21 to 24. And in context, verse 18 is referring to ungodly and unrighteous people who substitute the truth about God with their imaginations so that they can continue saying, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Therefore... God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Such an impure way of life sets us up for further sinful actions. And Rick, you know, when counseling people with addictions, you've often said how important it is to have a trusted someone to hold you accountable. I wanted to tell you about this new tool that's available that's doing it electronically. You might have heard of it. It's something that's dubbed shameware, which is software that in effect shames you. And you download an app and it allows your accountability partner to see everything you see on your phone or computer, all your internet searches, your phone calls, your apps, your pictures. Churches are buying these for their parishioners and so are parents. Now this Covenant Eyes that I quoted from earlier is one of the more popular companies that provide this. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of controversy around privacy issues because the service has access to your entire digital life, but it also could create a power imbalance leading to abuse between church leaders and congregants. The point is, 
churches are finding this to be such a big problem and clergy also have that problem that they're seeing the need for something to be done and people are trying to get creative about it. Well, and I'll tell you, as, as somebody who's had privilege to who help and walk alongside of many people in many circumstances, I would never touch that with a 10-foot pole. I would keep the accountability to the spoken word between us because that's the way humanity is designed to be. Something like that opens too many doors, and I, not with, not, no, just no, okay? Let, let's continue. Such an impure way of life sets us up for sinful for further sinful actions. You're, 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 you're walking this road, and the natural result is going to be further sinful actions. So again, we have the choice. Are we rising up to a spiritual life, or are we falling down into human depravity? To live an impure life is to live outside of God's grace. Dwelling on sensuality influences us into embracing a state of moral decay where desire and circumstances guide our decisions and direction. While we may go to church on Sunday, our daily life is Christless. Impurity as a deed of the flesh shows who we really are. And I have a mirror question. What road am I walking down? And here's another mirror question. What do I hope nobody asks me about? (laughs) See, it's easy for Christians to live a secret life because those around us make positive baseline assumptions. He would never cheat on his wife. He's a Christian. She would never be addicted to pornography. She's a Christian. And I have a quote here from Clay Olson of fightthenewdrug.org. And this is about pornography. This material is more aggressive, more harmful, more violent, more degrading and damaging than any other time in the history of the world. And this generation growing up is dealing with it to an intensity and a scale no other generation in the history of the world has ever had to. And for more on this topic, we recommend episode 967, Virtual Sex and Pornography, Does God Care? the damaging personal consequences of porn and how to be free from it. Okay, let's take a deep breath and get back to a positive scripture. Thank you. Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There is the antidote. Now, it's not an instant cure, but it's a process to have that full assurance of faith, to move forward into positiveness if we're dealing with this impurity of our life habits. So again, we're going to go to the fruit of the Spirit and ask a question. Julie, I'm going to ask you, what fruit of God's power and influence, uh, from your perspective, helps with this issue of impurity? So Jonathan, let's read the fruit of the Spirit again, then Julie, pick one. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I'm going to pick patience. To our listeners realizing that they're going down a bad road, you probably would have shut this podcast off by now if you weren't interested in moving in a different direction. God is merciful, and there is a lot of help and forgiveness available in the scriptures, and we can find help from friends, family, trusted advisors, professional counseling. It may take time to get up those steps, but keep moving forward. And for those on the outside looking in, we need to have patience and understanding in order to be a positive, 
and helpful influence on that person. So patience, that's a good application here. And somebody can say, no, well, what about goodness? What about faithfulness? Yes, good. Apply them. The point is they're there. Use them. They're the antidote. Next piece, Jonathan, where are we going? Well, our first category, remember, is intimate human desire from verse 19. Immorality, impurity, sensuality. What is being focused on? Right now, we're going to talk about immorality or fornication. There are five words the New Testament used to describe immorality or fornication. They are related and tell a complete story. Each of these five Greek words have the word porn in them related to our English word pornography. One of those Greek words is pornea, a noun meaning harlotry, including adultery and incest, figuratively idolatry. So in other words, sexuality outside of its appropriate place is engaging in idolatry because it worships the created and not the creator. It's a persistent lifestyle of sexual immorality. So and, we, we've, got, we've got a lot of things going here, and, and none of them are good. We're looking at immorality. There's a lot of words to describe it. Sensual, so, so let's put this all together. Sensuality is the feeling and inappropriate expression of sexual feelings. Impurity is living a, a life that creates its own morals outside of godly standards. These two deeds of the flesh combined are just small steps away from vile, immoral actions. 1 Corinthians 6, 16-20. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Flee immorality. Where should you run? In the opposite direction. It's really simple. It's simple. What begins in our minds is bad enough, but when it spreads to the intentions and actions of our lives, we have truly left godliness behind. What does immorality bring us to? A dead end of human, godless, and often covenant-breaking actions. Matthew 5, 27 to 29. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. Well, Jesus told us how to overcome these things. Identify the thought as being sinful and not acceptable. Obviously, we aren't supposed to physically rip out body parts. (laughs) This is metaphorical. So this is important because Jesus does tell us to root it out at its source. See, nobody can see your thinking, but you see it, you feel it, you acknowledge it, and you then you do something with it. And what we're suggesting is, according to Scripture, you put those things away because that's the desire of the flesh, which leads to the deeds of the flesh. We need to be careful and cut these things off early on. Fornication may be relabeled in our world today, but that doesn't change what it meant to God. Well, it's only the way I express myself sexually. That's my body. I can do whatever I'd like. Okay, great in the world. But God's definition never changed. You can say whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. But you're either acting in accordance with God's sacred standards or you're running far away from it. 
God doesn't change on this. He doesn't change. Don't fool yourself. He doesn't change. Jonathan, again, rising up to a spiritual life, or are we falling into human depravity? No matter where you look in the Bible, fornication is a heinous sin before God. It is a deed of the flesh that is a sin of the body. It violates the sacredness and holiness of any Christian's life. To rationalize it is foolish. To confess, repent, and ask forgiveness is to seek a godly path of a spiritual life. And I again have a mirror question. What will I do with what I've done? Hmm. Let's read Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And it's, that's a, an important scripture because it shows you that sexuality has a place in God's plan, and it has a sacred and honorable place. But when you take it out of that sacredness, it is dastardly, it is evil, it is dark. That's what we're looking at here, and that's what the Apostle Paul is lining up for us. So, Jonathan, I'm going to ask you now, what fruit of, this, of God's power, what fruit of the Spirit uh, and influence, um, what fruit, fruit of God's power and influence, I'm sorry, can help us overcome sensuality? So read through the fruit of the Spirit, then pick one. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. All right. Let's bring out the big guns on this one. <laughs> it has to be self-control in overcoming sensuality or fornication. Draw the line between right and wrong. Premarital sex is a sin. It's wrong. There are no test drives. After <laughs> that commitment is made, marriage, work hard to keep your spouse the desire of your heart and the apple of your eye. For when they know it and feel it, you both will be satisfied. And that's such an important way to look at this. Marriage is to be held in honor. That's the point. We put things where God put them, and we can rejoice in them because of that. So fornication, impurity, and sensuality certainly are an attention-getting list. Now that Paul has our attention, we need to listen. It is easy to see how these sins of intimate human desire are first on Paul's list. Is what's next as bad as these? <laughs> as we will see, what comes next is just as bad and actually in some ways worse as the next two deeds of the flesh have to do with our intimate relationship with God. This is another interesting reversal by Paul. The Ten Commandments began with God and then dealt with humanity. Paul puts God second in this list. And you wonder why. And I think it's so the Gentiles reading this would readily identify with their humanity first and thereby see more clearly the power of the one true God in their lives. Now that Paul definitely has our attention, the next word on the bad list is idolatry. That's right. So that second category, the spiritual control in our lives, verse 20 is going to talk about idolatry and sorcery. So what we're going to focus on now is idolatry. The Greek word in the New Testament translated into English as idolatry means image worship, literally or figuratively, the worship of false gods. And we've already mentioned a little bit what it was like in Paul's day. There were state-sponsored civic cults for the worship of local deities, and there would be festivals and sacrifices and athletic contests and mystery rites to these deities. 
And Rome at this time was influenced by Greek mythology. We talked about those imperial cults, the worship of the emperor. Most inhabitants of Rome were polytheistic. That means they worshiped several different gods and demigods, depending on their own preferences. So Paul's looking around, he'd see temples, he would have seen shrines, places of worship, and most forms of worship were tolerated. Let's look at the first two commandments, Exodus 20, 3 through 5. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. When you start getting into this topic, it's surprising how many times the Bible will discuss idolatry at the same time as sexual immorality. And it's often in the same verse or sentence. So if we're serious about our commitment to God, we don't want to break the most basic and important commandment of having no other gods before us. And, you know, it's it's important to realize that Paul put the human part first because he's dealing with a Gentile audience. They didn't have the sense of the one true God, but they had the sense of the things that they did. So it really makes some good sense here. Having other gods, this idolatry, having other gods means the elevation of anyone or anything in our lives that would challenge God's rightful place. Okay, Rick, some potential other gods could be ego, people, success. How about comfort, wealth, power, social position, or even cell phones and social media? (laughs) They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Think about how much more easily the Gentile Christians would grasp their past idolatries by having the human intimacies listed first, because all of that is idolatry as well. So it makes sense the way the Apostle Paul puts this out for us here. So, Jonathan, where, where do we go from here? What does idolatry bring us to? A dead end of human and godless allegiance that thrives in sin. 1 Peter 4, 3 and 4. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you did not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. Now, what is excesses of dissipation? Well, other translations say a flood of wild living or a flood of reckless indiscretion or immoral freedom. I like the New Living Translation. This verse says, of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. So they slander you. In other words, peer pressure. Is any of that going on today? Social media, anyone? Idolatry is not just bowing down before a physical thing. It's a state of mind that puts something or someone above God, and that can even be ourselves. Yeah, and we have to be so careful about this. The fact that idolatry is constantly listed in the context of having no actual images, okay, can be all these other things in our mind, It, it, it tells us how deeply an idolatrous attitude can be corrupting to our very lives. Question, Rick. Was the Apostle Paul dealing with these kinds of sins when he said in Romans 7.15, I do not understand what I do, for I want, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. 
you know, it's, it's important to understand that the Apostle Paul wasn't dealing with idolatry and sensuality and, and impure life. He was dealing with the, with, the, with the difficulties of staying on target all the time, of not relaxing in his Christian uh, service of, of others, of, of not letting his guard down. That's a very, very, very different kind of thing than going down these roads. These roads are specific, they're big, and they're dark. So no, the Apostle Paul wasn't fighting with any of this whatsoever. All right, so Jonathan, are we rising up to a spiritual life, or are we falling into human depravity? Idolatry is perhaps the most insidious of all these deeds of the flesh, because worshiping anything is first an in-your-mind activity. It does not need an actual formed image to continue its hold on us. Idolatry in any form is in direct opposition to our Christian principles. Again, a mirror question. Assess this carefully and honestly. What are the idols in my life? Let's read Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You can't prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect without the renewing of your mind, without that transformation, without looking at a higher way of living that takes idolatry and all of those things and puts it aside. We can't prove God's will unless we're in reverent harmony with it. We can point to it, we can intellectually talk about it, but you can't prove it because the proof is in our lives. So, what fruit, okay, John, uh, Julie, I'm going to ask you this one. What fruit of God's power and influence can help us overcome idolatry? Jonathan, read those fruit of the Spirit, and then Julie, pick one. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I'm going to pick love. That's an easy one. <laughs> it all goes back to Matthew 22, 34 to 36, when Jesus was asked for the greatest commandment. It was love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. If God is so high up in our respect, appreciation, and gratitude, we won't be able to lob anything higher to set up an idol above him. Our most important thing will always be to honor him, even in the mundane parts of our lives, and especially in our secret dangerous parts that we have to set traffic cones around. So you have the idea of idolatry as being one of these deeds of the flesh. Remember, the desires of the flesh bring us to the deeds of the flesh, and we need the fruit of the Spirit to help us overcome them. And as we go through this series, once we get to the fruit of the Spirit, we're going to slow down and look at those carefully so we can build the inspiration to move us forward. All right, Julie, where are we going now? Well, that second category, remember the spiritual control in our lives, verse 20, talked about idolatry. Oh, we're going to sorcery. So the Greek word for sorcery has to do with witchcraft and magical arts. And we covered this, you know, remember, what about good witchcraft? The answer is still no. <laughs> Listen to episode 1236, Can Christianity and Paganism Work Together? Part two, we explored details about Wicca. All right, so... <laughs> Sorcery, no, not on any level, not at any time, not under any condition, not with any rationalization, just to be specific. It's no accident that sorcery follows idolatry in the apostles' list. Once we have allegiance to anything other than God himself, we become open to doing ungodly things to feed that allegiance. That's why Deuteronomy is very specific. Deuteronomy 18, verse 10. 
There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer. And a sorcerer means to whisper a spell, that is, to enchant or practice magic. And scripturally, there is no positive use of this word. Now, what does sorcery bring us to? A dead end of human, godless, and destructive rituals of evil. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So any pattern of godlessness, of misplaced worship and devotion, any pattern along those lines always produces the same results. Remember we talked about how easy it is, you're either going in the right direction or you're going in the wrong direction. Any pattern of godliness, godlessness or misplaced worship and devotion, wrong direction. It's that simple. You're walking the wrong way. So Jonathan, again, the question, am I rising up to a spiritual life in what I'm doing, in what I'm, in, in what I'm worshiping and how I'm fulfilling that, or am I falling into human depravity? No matter how you try and define it, sorcery or witchcraft as a de- deed of the flesh is a dramatic extension of idolatry into dark and godless practices. As Christians, we must avoid any association with such things as they are unequivocally will lead us away from God. And a mirror question, do I have a curiosity about the supernatural that goes beyond scriptural guidelines? Let's go to Ephesians 5, 10 through 12 to get the proper perspective. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. So I I like what you said about having that curiosity. You know, curiosity is a, can be a very significant tool of Satan to draw us away, to draw us down the wrong path. And when we look at things like idolatry, which is actually easy to get entangled with, sorcery, not as easy, but it certainly can be fascinating because it's all about having power. And so when we go down that road of curiosity, we can really be bringing ourselves into a very, very difficult area. Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. That's what you read in Ephesians 5 right there. All right, so Jonathan, your turn. What fruit of God's power and influence can help us overcome sorcery? Read through the fruit of the Spirit and then give us, pick one. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So I picked faithfulness to God is paramount to avoiding sorcery and witchcraft. And the temptations are ever so subtle. Even its influence on our children these like Harry, things like Harry Potter, um, Dungeons and Dragons, the game, the video game, Warcraft, the TV show, The Good Witch. You know, Satan would love us to be accepting of these dark influences. Be faithful to righteousness and godliness, which keeps us safe. Stay away from those things that are attached to these dark deeds of the flesh. And remember, everything that we do as human beings is not a bad thing. When you see it on a list like this, though, you pay attention and you run away. So what we've done here is we've put things on the table. There's a lot more to talk about here. So, so Julie, let's begin to, to sum this up today. 
Well, in part one of this series, we've introduced the Apostle Paul's comparison of the deeds of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. He is meticulous in giving us this comprehensive list of those things that even today, especially today, will keep us from spiritual growth. And this shows how much he truly cares for each and every true disciple of Christ. We have covered deeds of the flesh regarding intimate human desire and spiritual control in our lives. Now, in our next episode, we're going to cover the deeds of the flesh regarding interpersonal as well as group relationships, as well as reckless behavior. All of these things are going to set up the amazing growth available when we develop the fruit of the Spirit. So there's a a journey here that we're on. We need to walk through this journey small step by small step so that we can get ourselves to a point to see the big picture and say, okay, I know what to do, I know what not to do, and I will never go in the wrong direction. Not anymore. That's what this is about. That's what the Apostle Paul is teaching us. Think about it. Folks, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode or other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. And as we said, mentioned, coming up in our next episode, Do I Walk in the Spirit or the Lusts of My Own Human Nature? Part 2. Talk to you next week. <music>